netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This special Oscar podcast is proudly brought to you by SideFX Software, creators of Houdini, procedural node-based 3D animation and visual effects tools for the film, television, and gaming industries. SideFX congratulates all the nominated VFX teams in this year's 2012 Academy Awards. Welcome to this special FX podcast brought to you by our friends at SideFX Software, celebrating 25 years and, of course, the makers of Houdini. Hi, I'm Mike Seymour, and this is our very special Oscar FX podcast. We're talking tonight to all five nominated films for Best Visual Effects Oscar this Sunday night at the Academy Awards. Um, Let's start with the film that our VFX show podcast predicted would actually take home the statue this uh, Sunday night, the film Hugo. What's your name, boy? Hugo. Hugo Cabret. Hugo, a terrific tale about the birth of the visual effects industry. As many of you know, we've already spoken to Rob Legato at some length about that in an earlier FX podcast. But I spoke to him last week at the VES Awards at the Beverly Hilton, where the team won the VES Outstanding Supporting Visual Effects in a feature motion picture. Congratulations on the nomination. Well, thank you very much. Um, we've obviously talked about the film, but since we've spoken, uh, the film has had an incredible run here with the uh, Academy Awards. Now we're here at the VES. I think every single person on the panel, when I first saw the film at the Guild, has now been nominated. Is that right? It seems like across the board. Yes. Uh, in fact, every single one of them. Which is terrific, I must say, not only for the, from your personal point of view, it must be great to know that your colleagues in their various departments are also being recognised. It's a big, big thrill. The last time I had a thrill like that was Titanic, and there was a certain joy in everybody you worked with being equally recognised, and it was like a big party where everybody kind of liked the collective of what you did. It wasn't singled out as one, everything else was okay, but one person did really well. Here it's almost like an, a level playing ground, which is ultimately how you want to make a movie anyway. You want them, everything wants to be uniformly good all the time. Also, earlier that same night, I got to sit down with the team from Rise of Planet of the Apes, our second nominated film. We gave them a gene therapy that allows the brain its own cells in order to repair itself. Caesar continues to show cognitive skills that far exceed that of a human counterpart. The drug in his system has radically boosted healthy brain functioning. You have no idea what you're dealing with. The team from Planet of the Apes actually won outstanding visual effects in a visual effects-driven feature film, taking out the other major award that night from the VS, thus, of course, making them another major contender for the Oscar this Sunday night. I spoke to Dan Lemon. Has it been any way a surprise, given the reception that the film had, that the film has gone so well at the Oscars in terms of visual effects? Um, I think, given, yeah, given the response that we got when the, the film came out, I don't think it's a, a big surprise. But, you know, it's always um, just, it's just great to be recognised and great to have your peers find that uh, your work you know, merits uh, recognition. I, I think that it was um, absolutely, completely expected that you would get a nomination because the work was so outstanding but I will say I will also be negative here and say before the film was ever seen by me I was somebody saying I can't believe they're making another apes film (laughs) I can't imagine I'm going to want to go and see this yeah so it's almost impossible from our point of view now 
to imagine that a origin story about a film that I was watching as a kid at school was going to be this popular. Yeah, I think I think that worked to our advantage. I think it was good that um, people had you know low initial expectations for the film because it gave us you know that we we could only go up from there, and um, and I think you know like you said you watched it as a kid. I watched it as a kid. It's a rich franchise, and there's a lot of great sort of thematic potential there. And I think with the the tools and technology that we have at our disposal now, we can really do justice to to those ideas. Scott Ferrara has been nominated for our third VFX film for this Sunday night, Transformers: Dark of the Moon. Years from now, they're going to ask, "Where were you when they took over the planet?" It's over. I'm sorry, but it's over. Optimus! But this isn't Scott's first nomination, or if he wins his first win. He won for Cocoon in 1985, then went on to be nominated again for Backdraft, for Artificial Intelligence, Narnia, and the first of the Transformers films in 2007. You know, it all starts with just some simple ideas. We Michael had a couple of uh, previous sequences put together and some artwork. He, you know, he had a real rough idea of a oh, what this building that gets crushed by a gigantic worm creature. And we went, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> that's going to be hard. And then he had a real rough previs of uh, Shia getting launched from Bumblebee to to save him from a big crash situation, and that was thrilling and exciting we go okay that's a good shot a funny thing happened you know you start always at the beginning of every show you just start fishing around for new ideas do you have to top yourself i don't know if it's that i you know you tend as an artist at least i do as an artist i don't think about what i just did so much i always think i think i can do some of these things better and that then that's a springboard for improvements but coming up with some new ideas i said you know what michael let's let's uh Let's make our robots darker and moodier. Everybody's seen them, but let's go more film noir style. And and if we could, like interiors and different things where you just have a lot less light on the face and more of a rim light and things, uh, you, you know, you institute a new look. That's And it always goes back to kind of something that that is derived from a film. And then I said, let's do super, super slow motion. Uh, we did really fast cuts and everything in the last one, and not everybody liked that. Not everybody liked really fast transformations. So I said, let's do some transformations that are so slow and really play it to the camera in 3D with all these moving parts so that so that people can really see what's going on. You almost find in every single film you've got to develop something new or invent something new because you're, you're facing every film as a prototype. That's what I like to say that – you know, yes, you've done. We did some robots in the last movies, but we we rebuild them again. We make them more heroic this time, uh, so it's not the same old thing that pops out of the box the, from the last film. Uh, you you come up with new new ideas for how to photograph them, what location to put them in. Bumblebee's gone through a transition where he looks meek in, in the first film compared to where we are now. So the it's not as subtle as you might think if you saw a, saw a side by side comparison. So the, that's a that's a pretty big rebuild. And so what you do is it's the same character, but it's all new parts, it's new shapes, it's new rigging, it's new a lot of everything. So 
you know, to build a model from scratch takes about 10, 12-ish weeks, depending on if it's a simplish model, and then another 15 weeks to rig it. And some of these, and, and double that for Colossus, the giant worm. So, you know, you kind of have to do that same time frame for even a rebuild. Our fourth nominated film is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part two. Senior Visual Effects Supervisor on Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 was Tim Berg. But what's really interesting about this is not only was Tim that had that role on this film, obviously Deathly Hallows Part 2, he also had it on Part 1. He was also the VFX Supervisor on uh, Half-Blood Prince and Order of the Phoenix and then worked on Goblet of Fire, was the Supervisor on uh, Prisoner of Azkaban and was actually at Mill Film on Chamber of Secrets. So not only has he worked on a succession of films, but unlike many other franchises, it was immediately apparent from about, what, the second film on the Harry Potter franchise that they were going to make the subsequent films. And many of the same people became the team that would work on the later films, which gave this franchise a very unique position in that they knew that they were going to make not just one, not just two, but several sequels beyond the film they happened to be working on when this film was commissioned. Emma Norton, my producer, and I, um, when we were working on Half-Blood Prince, we were turning up, well, I was turning up onto set and sitting, filming scenes for Half-Blood Prince with David Yates, and we were talking about how we were going to do the ageing for the kids right. for the final scene of the last film and, you know, throwing those ideas around. Then we go back to filming Half-Blood Prince. So that, that was sort of that kind of level of overlap. And then, as I was saying, Emma and I basically decided that we couldn't wait for the script to come for... Um, for the Deathly Hallows Parts 1 and 2. So obviously we just took the book and we broke the book down and we, we started figuring out what on earth we would have to do in terms of... And we didn't know how much would be left in and how much would be taken out. So we kind of broke the whole book down. And that's when we started to re- realise that, you know, sort of the amount of work that was going to be involved with Hogwarts and the fire and the battle would, would be something that we'd have to look into and whether we could do that with the miniature and which is why we took the decision to start building the digital um, Hogwarts and do all of that as a CG environment to give us this massive flexibility to do all of the work and shots right. for Deathly Hallows Parts 2. So we were making that decision based on what was in the book and not the script, and we made that decision before we even had the script. So we kind of amalgamated it all, sort of designed the sequences, showed David Yates, he made comments, we did this, we did that. We ended up previsiting pretty much the second half of the film for the whole battle. And that became the script in a way, that became the guide as to what um, the departments needed to do, what each you know, different set needed to be built, the levels and you know, how much of it and so on and so on. What would be complete CG, what would be an extension. I, I do like different facilities for doing different things. And of course, right. um, there are strengths and weaknesses, but you're absolutely right, it depends on who the team is as well. And DNAG have done some amazing environment stuff for us over the years. And they got my vote to be the company that would handle the digital environment for Hogwarts and the build. And they did a fantastic job. And they've got some great bespoke in-house tools for um, rigid body dynamics and the sort of the destruction tools that we would need that, that we went and demonstrated on previous films. Hmm. 
and that allowed us to move away from having to do miniatures to having to even do practical effects elements. We were doing it all with CG and using their um, their tools. You know, the other houses, you know, NPC strengths. I mean, we, you know, all of them handle animation very well, and you know, DNA were sort of, you know, they pretty much got the dragon through a very strong pitch, an aggressive pitch, and, you know, getting involved in concepts. That was kind of open to several houses, all of whom could have done a great job. Um, NPC have got great strengths with their crowd work, and, you know, we, we basically drew a, a virtual line through the um, a virtual set and decided everything on the the sort of land side of the viaduct would be NPC because they could build that environment and they could populate it with the thousands of Death Eaters, which right. their Alice software does so well, and they'd be very good at doing that. Plus, I've done some great um, um, uh, CG prosthetics with them, and sort of I've done a lot of development work with them, a facial capture system called Mova Control Reality mm-hmm. on the last couple of films. And so I wanted to use stuff that we developed. You know, this was really stuff that we've developed over films and sort of got a good pipeline going. So we kind of started falling into um, technical disciplines that had already been developing and working with different companies. So there was some nice little sort of tie-ups with previous films, you know, coming back. Um, Rising Sun, who had done the Dementors on the... Deathly Hallows Parts 1 um, came back and did them on Deathly Hallows Parts 2 as well. Because they'd also so, done the Horcrux yeah. Death in they'd 1. They'd done the, they? exactly, that's right, yeah. Our fifth nominated film is another robot film, a fighting robot film, Real Steel. Times have changed. Fighting has changed. But the crowd, they never change. Just get bigger. The human body can only take so much. The visual effects supervisor on Real Steel is Eric Nash, and I talked to Eric not only just about the film, but I wanted to start looking at the process of basically being awarded the film and also working out how you actually come up with the ideas to win the bid to get a film, because I think we often talk about how things were solved, not how people came up with the ideas to sort of win the bid that allowed them to actually work on a film like Real Steel? Well, when I, when I read it, and it was really, you know, it wasn't even halfway through the script, and I immediately uh, flashed on a visit I had down to Giant Studios. Actually, it was not at Giant Studios, but Giant Studios was, was doing the motion capture. visited uh, the mocap stage, for Avatar and saw what they were doing with virtual production. And as I was reading Real Steel and thinking about how to do the boxing matches, it was like a light bulb went off and it was like, oh, this is, this is the technology was created for this kind of problem. Or conversely, I'm reading the scripts like, oh, I mean, it was almost like this was written to take advantage <laughs> of that technology. So I thought I had a really, you know, creative uh, novel approach to doing this. And then our first meeting with 
the filmmakers included Josh McLaughlin, who was an executive producer in the first AD, who had also been on Avatar. So as I'm pitching my idea of how to do these fights, he's sitting at the other end of the table just nodding because he had pitched the exact same approach. Because when he read it, having been through Avatar, he's like, oh, we have to use virtual production for this. So thinking I had had this brainstorm, it was like, yeah, it had already been thought of and it was already part of their plan. And then we just had to uh, convince them that we could interface well with giant studios and, you know, make a unified approach that would fit within their financial box. And really that was all the sales it took. So one of the key jobs of a visual effects supervisor is to supervise principal photography, to be on set, obviously also to supervise second unit, sometimes to be the second unit, either DOP or second unit, even the second unit director. The visual effects supervisor is on the set, but in this day and age of digital technology and stuff, I was interested to explore that in terms of what it meant. And this all came about from actually <laughs> sitting around one afternoon in LA watching something on TV. So I was uh, in America around the time that you were filming this, and I just happened to switch on the television. And there was one of those shows, like uh, I'm going to say Entertainment Tonight, their crew filming your Transformers crew. And basically what happened is they had a, a large section of the street and a bunch of air cannons kind of went off and then there was just nothing. And of course it dawned on me the second I saw that, well, of course there's nothing because everything's going to be put in in post. So it made it very hard for this poor um, guys who were making this ET show to make it that interesting because really it was just like blank plates. And yet I know that you personally spent an enormous amount of time actually out in helicopters shooting aerial plates. Like you spent right. a lot of time out of ILM on a film that basically did most of the fun stuff digitally. Well, not not most. Uh, you know, we always start. That's one one thing that's great with Michael Bay and his crew, and John Fraser and his physical effects crew. That w- literally, we cook up gags and recipes for things. Um, the the leads on these crews, I'll go. We'll say, okay, here's the shot we're going to do, and and we'll talk about the the assorted pyrotechnics that. Well, they can be flamey, they can be explosive, they can be just short pops, they can be long, you know, prolonged blasts, they can be uh, all kinds of different colors of smoke and flame and things, and and then there's mist and there's wind and there's all these elements that are physical that you use, all these tools that are that you can use on set, and so luckily I did start my life on the physical side doing doing camera work and as working as a director of photography. So I know all those tools out on the set. So we just go out and play them like so many keys on a, on a piano and set up the shot to try and come up with new gags and new ideas and all that stuff. Um, and that gives us a start because we shoot everything messy and dirty uh, on the ground. Or, and the, as you mentioned, I spent about six weeks in a helicopter various times of the day shooting around uh, – the city of Chicago to get all the different runs that we needed and different flight patterns that we needed and all the different tones of light and working as a second unit uh, uh, director. And uh, I did sort of that on all three films, actually, just depending on what we needed to do. But that's the that gives us a canvas to start with. But if you shoot a, something as simple as a dust poof out on a bridge in the middle of Chicago at about 8.30 in the morning – the the color and the lighting and the internal shading and the tones and the 
and the density and the grain and the movement is so complicated, you cannot possibly recreate that out of your own brain. So what I like to do is shoot these things, and it gives you a terrific guide as to how you should build the shot from that time forward, if you but, see what I mean. I do, but Scott, and I mean this as somebody playing devil's advocate, because yeah. I know what you're going to say. But surely, did no one say, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we had clean plates and out of the smoke in later, because getting these CG elements behind and in the smoke and trying to do the tracking when there's so much debris and stuff in the shot, it would be a lot easier with a blank plate. Yes, and it would look bad. <laughs> so once once again, you've got to decide what what do you want it to look look like. And it really, I I give a lot of credit to Michael Bay because he and his crew will take the time to do this, and he endorses it. He always said, "Well, let's can we shoot it dirty?" And I kind of stumbled into it honestly on the first Transformers. I go, "Well, okay, let's try." Because normally, you're absolutely right. We as uh, visual effects pra- practitioners would say, "No, no, don't put anything. Less smoke. Less smoke." No, no, don't put any of that stuff in it. If we're going to put the robot in, no, no, no. We want it clean, put it way, way back there in the back. Then we'll put our little robot in there, and then we'll put our own CG smoke in front of that, and we'll build it, build it later. And I, I took, an, you know, we all have to learn. And I took big steps forward as far as being crazy and brave at the same time and say, no, you know what? Let's do it. Let's shoot it this way and make it work because the way we've been doing it doesn't produce the results that we want and that's really all it it, you know you kind of stumble into something that works better but yes you do rely heavily as you said on roto and paint people and really clever compositors to to place these you know make it look like that robot was in that smoke cloud when it went off but then you have to very judiciously and carefully put in extra layers that match that and move in the similar way. Here at FX Guide, we've obviously published stories on all of these major films as they came out. So one of the things I thought we'd continue to explore is this idea of how you would go about actually presenting your film to win at uh, a bake-off because the process of the academy awards is kind of interesting for visual effects in that there's a very different group voting on who's going to actually win the oscar that would be the entire academy versus who is actually going to make the film uh one that goes through as a nominated film and that comes from the bake-off so a panel selects a set of eligible films they go into consideration and the people that are basically uh, representing each of the films present a reel and speak briefly at a night in Hollywood. And that bake-off night, that's the night that really is pivotal in determining which films will then become nominated as the films that we're talking about today. People ask what it's like. There's nothing like it. it is, it's thrilling. And uh, the first step that we've just gone through is the fact that the, we, we show our, our uh, reel and introduce the reel and answer questions at the bake-off. And that's composed of all visual effects people in that branch of the academy. And so the visual effects branch is the one that's kind of voted to send you along to the main ballot. So it's a great feeling. You know, people say this, I think, but it's pretty amazing for your peers to uh, to, to enjoy your work, to like the work that you've done. That means a great deal. Well, it's a big thrill, and it's, and it's a, a slightly larger pool. And, you know, at some point it becomes a crapshoot. The, the, the logic of who should win and all that stuff becomes a, a, a public opinion within the academy. So it doesn't necessarily signify, well, that was 
the very best. It may be what is the most popular, maybe what people like the most, or people what they thought had more effects in it. Some they could look at some body of work, or they could see yeah. some seamless piece of work and not know that a lot of work was done, and then see something that's obvious and say, "But the nomination process is the real test because." Out of the nomination process, we say any one of these five contenders is worthy of an Oscar. It's not like there's four and whatever. There is every single one of them, and we would be proud for each and every one of them to win. So that means that our branch, our uh, society, so to speak, already gave you an award. You are, you, are, you are certainly qualified to win one. You know, in this case, you, know, you could pick any one of the ten that we uh, saw at the Bake Off and say any one of them really could be in this slot. And um, so you, you now have to kind of alter what you use as a criterion for what you consider the best is. Now you start getting into storytelling. What, is the, what told the best story? What was the most engaging? What was the most artistic? What was the most beautiful? What was, you have to come up with something else because they're all credible. They're all the work is so high and so good that the individual artists who do them, now you sort of have to rely on the art of the film itself and the filmmaker who used them and put them together. Bake-off's a pretty critical part of the process, and you've had your fair share of, uh, of bake-offs. I'm wondering, how did you approach uh, what to show the audience, uh, and could you describe the bake-off process for the Oscar? Uh, well, the bake-off process is, in case, you know, describing that somebody hasn't seen it, is that you, you could only, you're only allowed 10 minutes to uh, be taken from the movie, so the part of the process of choosing the 10 minutes is which 10 minutes best tells the story of what you were trying to do but you can't include everything so you have to do a taste of something and then you can't go too far in the taste of something because you may lose what makes it work in the first place which is how it works in the sequence how it works with sound so you can't just say okay let me just chop out every cool shot and, and string it together because that, that no longer tells the story and that's uh, in, in, uh, certainly in our case a very huge part of what we're doing so part of it is the balance of what do I show how much of it do I show how much of a scene do I leave intact and still get the message of look at all the work that I've done please judge all the work I've done so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a tough challenge to actually put it together and, and but I'm right in thinking that the Academy members or the members of the Bake Off uh, community got to see your film in stereo, right? You got that 10-minute in stereo? Yes, I did it all in stereo because that's also part of the art form. It's a, very akin to what we're talking about is that now you take the stereo away, it wasn't really composed for 2D. It wasn't really directed and, and, and supervised for 2D. It was directed and supervised for stereo. So you need to see it in the medium with which we were trying to create the film and which we think you need to see the film. It's not a 2D film that we converted. It is a 3D movie only, almost a 3D movie that we converted to 2D. Is almost the way around. As long as I've been going to the Bake Offs, it's they've always been very strict about its material from the movie cuts only. And back back in that day, it was since there was no digital uh, projection, it was you had to cut a release print. Right. So it was a little rough back then because you know because of the offset between picture and sound you couldn't make very clean edits and it was definitely tough and you know it was a print that had splices in it to my mind it it needs to flow and it basically needs to be a short film and if you can it's nice to you know sort of tell a condensed version of the story of the movie which is all the all the much all the more difficult doing it in 10 minutes rather than 15. 
I mean, we had uh, in the vicinity of 48 minutes of visual effects out of the two-hour running time. So obviously more of our work than not is not in the real. And I think a big part of the reason that we were fortunate enough to get nominated was uh, the strength of our reel, um, which Adam Gerstel, who was the visual effects editor on the production side for Real Steel, he and I actually cut a version of a bake-off reel last summer when we had some time as we were finishing up and before they closed down the cutting room, we spent uh, a couple hours over uh, a couple hours a day over several several days and because I'm uh, on the visual effects executive committee I knew that the the rules were going to be a little different this year this is the first year where there were 10 movies in the bake-off and when they went from 7 to 10 they also changed the length of the reel from 15 down to 10 minutes. So I knew we had to fit it into 10 minutes. And having been going to the bake-offs now for, boy, I think my first bake-off I actually went to was uh, 95, I want to say. So I've been going for years, and I have a, you know, an opinion about what makes a good bake-off reel. So I tried to convey that to Adam and we sort of put that together and, and let it sit for a while. And then when we made the long list, we back in December, we looked at it again. And I think at that point we showed it to Sean Levy, our director, and he had some notes and we made some changes. And, but I, I think we had a really strong reel, and I think that definitely was a, a contributing factor to us being fortunate enough to be one of the nominees. You're also allowed to talk, obviously, uh, at the Bake Off. Who who gets yep. to talk, and and what do you? Th- I mean, how scripted and how important is that? Because in many respects, you know a lot of people in the room. Yeah, it's you're given five minutes before the reel to sort of introduce the work, and they, when you make the bake-off list, they send a letter to all the those involved, and and they suggest that it not that you don't use it as a forum to, uh, you know, name names and acknowledge work. Although most people, myself included, do a little bit of that. But what they really uh, hope the presenter will do is to inform the voting members about what to look for. Uh, you know, visual effects have gotten so sophisticated in the last five or ten years that even people in the business can't always tell what's a visual effect. So I find it helpful. And it's one of the things I tried to do in my presentation is just clue people into what to look for, what's significant. Um, And, you know, it's also a bit of campaigning. You're trying to make or help, you're trying to help your movie, uh, you know, stand out against the other nine. So it's a bit of a sales pitch, but mostly it's, uh, 
hopefully informative so that when the voting members watch the reel, they notice things that will hopefully put put the work in a in a good light and help them appreciate the uh, the craft of it. One of the things that I really liked about Real Steel is just the emotional connection we had with is what is basically an ambiguous for me anyway character. Adam, the main the main robot, is anthropomorphized by the child, and is it in fact something that is justified? Is the character self-aware we, we just don't know and i guess it's testament to how much i think the work of uh, digital domain and real steel uh, overall was successful how well it actually took me as an audience member uh to a point where i believed what i was seeing in front of my eyes can be heard in this next question to eric nash i basically ask eric about this idea of the emotional connection that they achieved in one key scene in the film where Adam is sitting on a bench in a locker room and the two actors leave the room to go up to the, uh, the, the skybox. And we're left with a shot of the robot sitting on the edge of a, a bench looking at a mirror. The camera just tracks in really slowly. And I asked Eric about this because I thought that the character animators, the guys who produced the what I thought digital version of Adam, had done such a terrific job in walking this line between it looking expressive, looking like it was thinking, and of course also being able to walk away saying, well, no, it's just an inanimate object that's sitting there. As you'll hear, my misinterpretation, misunderstanding of that scene is probably the best validation of the work done by the team on Real Steel. I don't think there was a more expressive emotional character thing than whoever rigged the robot for that view into the mirror when they leave to go up to the uh to the box and he's left in the room by himself and he's just looking in the mirror and as and the, the actual the delicateness of the framing of that hunch and of the look that had me on the edge of my seat is he going to come to life or isn't he or is my imagining it or am i not I mean, for for a thing that has no character animation theoretically, no facial stuff in that sense. Mm-hmm. Man, you got it out. You nailed it completely. And the guy didn't well, even move. I appreciate the uh, the sentiment, but that was a practical robot. That was Sean. Oh, really? That was that Sean was and Legacy. There were really? no visual effects involved in those shots at all in camera. Well then, so that's, then, that's then I'll John say that I, Grant and, I couldn't tell the difference between the digital and the real then because I had just assumed that you had rigged that. Nope. Wow. I appreciate you thinking that, and um, that was one of the things we really worked very hard at was making our CG robot <clears throat> match the practical one. Uh, and Paul George, our CG soup and his team, I think, really nailed it. I mean, there were a couple times when we would be reviewing stuff with Sean, and he would um, make a comment about, you know, a, you know, minor animation thing on a shot that we were reviewing in context of the scene, and more than once he'd say, uh, "That's not ours. That's the that's the practical robot." <laughs> and he would go, "Oh, okay. Our biggest." sort of animation challenge was our our lead robot Adam had to be an appealing and sympathetic character that the boy in the movie would connect with and hopefully the audience as well would connect with and so you know a metal all you know metallic robot with that doesn't speak and has no facial expression capability whatsoever we had to make it a, an appealing character. And that 
drew on the the input of all three parties involved in creating Adam's performance, starting with Jason Matthews from Legacy, who puppeteered Adam on set when we were using the animatronic robot. Uh, Also, Garrett Warren and Eddie Davenport, who were the motion capture performers who did the mocap foundation for the CG character. And then, obviously, Dan Taylor and our animation team here at Digital Domain also contributing tremendously to that performance. So all three of those groups of people had to make a unified performance and make this sort of emotional connection with the boy and with the audience. And with all the talk about motion capture and how how great it is and what amazing technology, it's motion capture is only the foundation of the animation and I can say without hesitation that every bit of motion capture in real steel had keyframe work done on top of it and and in some cases the you know not many but there were a, a handful of cases where the motion capture Sean had a different idea that came about during post-production and we had to abandon the motion capture completely. So there are some purely motion, uh, purely keyframed uh, shots in the movie. Well, so that especially was, you have a robot with two heads, it seems odd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Let's do that again. Nice. Punch combo. It brings us around to digital characters in general, and there are two films that really relied heavily on digital characters, and I guess one in particular. The first of those, of course, would be Apes, which really had as its principal character a digital character. They had to carry an enormous amount of the emotional weight of the film, and this character, let's face it, did not have dialogue, or had very little dialogue, um, was not human, had to express a lot of range of emotions, and age from a child to a teenager to an adult and of course had to manage aggression pain suffering loss along the way all of that acting was was remarkable and it's pretty much testament to how well the team at Weta have done with the working character animation that you could actually have a film as successful as Apes that so heavily relies on a digital character. But they weren't the only ones. Also, I spoke to Tim Burke about this and Harry Potter because the same thing could be said of part one and part two's uh, Dobby's performance in Harry Potter. But first, I put the issue of carrying the plot and how important it was to get that character animation to be able to withstand the rigours of being subjected to that kind of attention to Dan at Weta. When I'm watching the film, I have a character that as an audience member I need to relate to, and that has to be a consistent performance yeah. and a performance that can carry that amount of screen time because yeah. there was no hiding away from, from that. Yeah, and I think that's you know, all credit to, to Andy. I mean, to, it's, it's a big ask just to say that we're going to make a digital character and he's not going to talk and he's going to have to carry you know, two-thirds of the film with no dialogue and people are going to have to care about him and, you know, want to and be rooting for him and follow that story. It's, I mean, it's a tough ask for any, for any actor. So. And then in the same way that any lead actor relies on the DOP or the, or the wardrobe or whatever, I mean, for example, the quality of the rendering of the apes, mm. you know, in, allowed that performance to come through. Like, it's, it's, that's what I mean by team effort. Like, they, you know, yeah. the, the lighting guys had to get the lighting right or 
Absolutely. You'd, you'd sort of lose uh, touch of that performance. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of faith, um, a lot of faith and trust put in us on, you know, by all the, the filmmakers that were collaborating on the project. I mean, from the studio to, to Rupert, um, Andy Serkis, and even James Franco had, you know, said that one of the reasons that he was interested in getting involved in the project was that he knew we were going to be involved and he had confidence that, you know, we'd be able to um, deliver great-looking apes. Actually, that's one of the points I wanted to touch on because not much credit is given, maybe in the popular press, to that aspect of Franco's performance. But it must have been uh, a much more liberating acting performance for him, having someone to act to that was so responsive, rather than say just a cardboard cutout or a, oh, yeah. a tennis ball. Yeah, I think he really understood the process um, in that way, and he really respected Andy as an actor. And I mean, he 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 put out a great little. Um, uh, uh, you know, a couple paragraphs when, as, as part of the the campaign, you know, to just to get some recognition for the work that Andy had done, and it really showed how much he appreciated having an actor there that he could participate with. And you know, as part of just the the visual effects process, we're always sh- shooting the scenes without the, the actor as well because we need the material to to use to paint back to remove Andy from the plate before we put Caesar on top. And so we'd do things where you know we'd, we'd run the take with with Andy and James together. Then we'd pull Andy out and run it with just James alone, you know. And he was he was quite good about trying to repeat his performance as best he could. You know, we might have to use a bit of his hand or something if it was going to be, you know, sticking behind um, behind Andy. There are pieces of him that we would use, but it's never the same as actually having an actor there present and the the reaction you get and just the the performance from the human actor is um, it's, it's always much better when you can put them together in the same scene. I'm wondering if we could turn to, I'm going to call them best supporting digital actor, because I thought that the, uh, the rendering, the performance, and just the execution of the orangutan was just <laughs> exceptionally good. I'm sure I'm not alone in telling you that. Yeah, I mean, the orangutan was a lot of fun. Maurice, he was, uh, I mean, they're just such amazing animals. And orangutans in particular, you, when you start looking at, um, at them, they're just so different from one orangutan to the next. So it was a, it was a really fun process in terms of figuring out what our orangutan was going to be like, you know, we we're going to have an alpha male that had like the really long shaggy hair. We'd have some females and some other like less dominant males as well. And we had to do some new things with our fur system in order to allow us to have those long, you know, shaggy hair and just work with the simulations and make sure that everything kind of, you know, worked properly in, um, in terms of not having hair intersect itself and um, just dealing with bigger, bigger strands. I mean, we've always done a combination of different facial capture for our digital doubles and I've been using facial capture for you know as I say for digital doubles and some of the CG characters on the last couple of films using this Nova system Mm. but full body motion capture I've not done that much I mean I was experimenting a little bit on the current film using it more actually in previews to be honest um, and getting some very exciting new results that and I'm hoping to develop further forward and a lot of people are doing this these days but motion capturing um, some of the performances and then finding new ways of um, filming them that you know are not constrained by sort of physical sets or physical cameras so really trying to explore the idea of the virtual camera and how that can enhance a sequence so yeah using it in all sorts of different ways actually at the moment can I also ask you to just cut it a different way, which is that some of these films were stereoscopically done and obviously others uh, traditionally. You've obviously had the experience. What, what do you think? Where, where is you know, your personal opinion on, a, on another project that was to come along? Are you 
keen to work stereoscopically? Are you um, keen to, I don't know, go another way, like IMAX, like the, some of the uh, films are doing? Oh, it's, that's a tricky one. Um, I mean, I've, my experience on part two, Death Eyes part two, was, was um, a, a film which we post-converted 80% of it, and uh, we, I, the visual effects, delivered um, 20% of it as full CG um, stereo deliveries. And that was that was fun. I've got to say that was a good experience doing the, you know, uh, doing the design for the stereo side of things. You know, especially when you've got things like the dragon sequence and, you know, the cart ride. You know, being able to create essentially a 3D roller coaster ride was great fun. Um, so I I think it is appropriate. But, you know, we we went through the rest of the film, and the director was very keen to make the stereo immersive but not in your face so that it actually took you out of the film and i think this is a, this is the problem is you know people expect it to be sort of quite quite a heavy effect but actually it's most successful when it's not too heavy when it's actually you know it lends itself to the storytelling and does no more than that and imax is a desire to uh, or do you think that might be a bit restrictive on set in terms of uh, shooting with such a big format I, I I think you know because the demands have been put there by you know Christopher Nolan and other people that it's becoming more accessible and companies are you know facilities are actually finding ways of of working with it so it's a beautiful format and the quality is is quite stunning. I hadn't done a 3D film and so we had to go to school quickly and learn about it very fast and. Uh, uh, a, a few of the folks here at ILM had worked on Avatar. We did a big s- couple of sequences. So we looked at those shots and how to do it and what to put together and all that sort of thing. And um, Then I did a test where we did, you know, you can shoot with stereo cameras, two cameras. Yep. Or, But when you're making a robot, you've got to produce that in the computer. So you're rendering or, or, or making two views of that robot whatever its animation is, uh, from two eyes. So I did a quick test of Bumblebee just walking and turning and moving around that we could see and that I could see and that we could show Michael and and the producers and so forth because we're still trying to sort out, are we going to do 3D? Well, what a surprise. Bumblebee, just like all the other robots, they're made, he's he's around 10,000 parts. So... What I didn't think about is that the 3D would show off the depth and the nooks and the crannies of the shape of this character, uh, which is far different than a simple human head or something, you know. And everybody went, oh, my gosh, that is truly something we haven't seen before. So the the subject matter lent itself quite well to uh, 3D, especially in close-ups where you could really see all those all those shapes and the and the depth and and then Michael shoots with a lot of uh depth anyway in his in all his scenes so it was a pretty good marriage all the way up and down you know I I like 3D I really enjoy it it's not everybody's cup of tea but I I do like it and interestingly uh, Harry Potter stereo and Transformers stereo um Certainly a really interesting aspect of the visual effects of Hugo was the stereo component and how well that worked. And that seems to have also, in its own right, been universally acknowledged to be some of the best work done. Well, the the reason I think people are acknowledging it is because the care and love that went into 
taking advantage of what stereo gives you as opposed to we just turned it into stereo. And some of the movies are just uh, done later. And it's not that technique doing it later is bad. It's that at the moment of creation, you are still striving for what's that extra thing? What's that extra little bit of depth? How does it help me tell the story? How does it tell it better? How does it make it more interesting? What can I take advantage of? What do I steer away from? So that care and love is put into every single moment as it's being created, as opposed to you didn't think of any of it, you went to turn into stereo later, and you get what you get. It's very good, but it doesn't have this extra little layer like a very fine performance has. What the stereo does for the shot, has been, that moment has been lost. You can't really get it back. It's, I use the analogy of color. If you shot something in black and white and didn't really consider what people are wearing, and then all of a sudden later you said, okay, let's turn into color, well, you would, might have reacted differently as an actor if you were wearing a red shirt in a room where everybody's wearing a black tux. Something about that would stand out. So that would be need, that needs to be considered in the performances and the staging of it, the lighting of it. All those things need to take place. It can't just be something that, that is tossed in uh, at the very end. It's got to be something that, as you're doing it, uh, the art of it is incorporated into the art of cinema, which is the sum total of everything. Costumes, lighting, acting, staging, directing, uh, sound, all the various things come together to make one sort of symphony, which is what we call cinema. And stereo is now part of that. It's not, it's not an exclusion to that. It's not something to be tacked on. Yeah, I mean, I'm personally not a huge fan of 3D, um, although I thought the 3D they did on Hugo was as good as 3D gets. And it definitely makes the work much more complicated. So much of what we do in terms of, you know, compositing work and, you know, the, the sort of last little touches of finesse that we take for granted working on a flat film, all of a sudden you can't do in stereo because it's it'll reveal itself as what it is. So it definitely adds a significant layer of complexity um, and, you know, Hugo, between the gorgeous production design and art direction and Bob Richardson's cinematography was, you know, an absolutely stunning looking movie. And, you know, the visual effects fit right into that. And, you know, without looking at all the material about what was actually built and what was set extensions, you'd never know. I made no bones about the fact I'm a bit of a fan of Lola's anti-aging work, which got a pretty good look in in the VES Awards in terms of the skinny Steve in Captain America. But uh, they were doing anti-aging in Hugo that I thought was very good in stereo. Did you mm. did you like that work in Hugo? Uh, it was pretty seamless. Yeah, they, they do phenomenal work. And I'm glad you mentioned Captain America because I thought... Um, the skinny Steve stuff was was just amazing, and I was actually a little bit surprised that it didn't earn them a nomination over us because mm -hmm. it was so so well done. Um, I'm thankful, but each <laughs> year <laughs> one tends to try and look for a theme in the category that you're looking at whether it's stereo or not stereo, character animation or, or not, live action or fantasy, whatever it is, just sort of an overall theme. But I think one of the themes that hasn't maybe been discussed enough is this uh, embracing of not only the latest cutting-edge technology, but also completely also carrying with that uh, 
genuine love of everything we might call old school. And this comes not only in terms of the plots, because, of course, we've got things like Hugo that are celebrating original uh, visual effects from the, the jump cut right through, to, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, we've got cutting-edge stuff that we've never uh, seen the likes of before. It's tremendously great character animation work and some really, really spectacular uh, work in terms of integrating basically rigid body surfaces into uh, live-action footage in a realistic way. Terrific compositing, spectacular uh, destruction uh, sequences. But we should also look behind the scenes and realise the wealth of experience that some of these nominated supervisors have, none more so than Scott Farrar, whose range of experiences spans all of these techniques. And I spoke to Scott about that huge value of experience that he brought to a production. But I'm wondering if I could just turn back the clock for a second, um, back to some of your earlier work. And I'm wondering sure. if we could just, because you won the Oscar for Cocoon, I was wondering if we could sort of discuss what it was like back then in, in around 85 in terms of visual effects <laughs> and its relationship to the rest of the, uh, the industry. Obviously, that film was also very successful. But um, how is it different now? Well, first of all, what was it like then? Uh, that was all photochemical days, and I think if we could go back and fix mats and improve images, we would because uh, just barely patching things together and depending on mechanical machinery, uh, in other words, optical printers and so forth, to make the registrations fit, and you just hope that each shot would come through without uh, ruining a mat, and after so many takes, like seven takes, you had to remake all the mats. It, you know, those were... You were just lucky to get a shot out lots of times and and then to win an award for the work. We talked about a bonus for – I was just lucky to be working in the visual effects business. And so that was that came kind of out of the blue and it was a terrific surprise. But how have things changed? Oh, my gosh. The work is so much better now. Uh, I think people struggled with the conversion from photochemical, which means shooting with cameras and celluloid film and, and uh, the only – the only images that you had were what you shot. It might be with actors, the, uh, the backgrounds and the plates, we call them, or the elements that go into those plates, like spaceships or, in that case, uh, floating, uh, floating gymnasts dressed in white, hanging from wires in front of blue screen that have multiple layers of, of uh, optical effects that put, are put over them, and that's all printed together. Or you do animation effects. So, or, and you shoot various elements with the camera. That's the only way that you could produce image. Well, now, look where we are. Visual effects coming in the computer graphics age. I, I think we've struggled for a long time to make computer graphics images look photoreal, as if you shot them with a camera with a lens. And that sounds so simple, but there's something graphic about every image that is first made in a computer, and there, you have to do a lot of trickery to make it look realistic. But we, I think we've learned, and the artists are better, the software is better, but most of all, uh, I think we're paying more attention to the art of imagery, and that's the most important thing to me, uh, to improve the images and, and keep a keen eye on on the uh, the art side of things. And that, that means I, for instance, you pay a lot of attention to the light and and the the way the uh, composition is and how the camera moves and and all those things that go into the feel of a shot. It, it's ironic that we're switching now to a lot of uh, HD cameras and, and a lot of non-film cameras where things are recorded on chips and so forth that um, are electronic. But 
but and and what are we always trying to do? We're always trying to capture the essence of a film look in in uh, even the new films. You know, every all the all the new cameras that are coming out made by whatever manufacturer, they're trying to get a, a range so it, it emulates film. You know, the the look and style of color, contrast, all the different esoteric things that go into what a film image looks like uh, are are the the attempt is to recreate that. Only now it's in digital media. Obviously, one of the things that is unique about Real Steel was our use of virtual production technology. You know, stuff that had been done on Avatar, albeit in a primarily purely CG realm. We used that technology for all the robot fights and used it on location in Detroit. And uh, particularly the simulcam aspect of that, which allowed the uh, camera operator and Sean, our director, to see the pre-captured boxing robot animation in real time through the camera as we were shooting so that rather than in the traditional way you sort of blindly shoot negative space and ultimately shoehorn the boxing robots into those plates in post, we were actually able to see boxing robots as we shot and have a, a temp version of the shot right then and there on set. So that was a, a big sort of technological advance. And the the big benefit in terms of the movie, the you know, the final product was the cinematography for the fights was very organic and visceral. And because it was shot this exactly how... Uh, Raging Bull was shot. You know, guy with a steady cam in the ring reacting to the fighting. He, he wasn't actually in the ring with robots, but through his viewfinder, he saw boxing robots. The most controversial part about this year's Academy Awards was perhaps the discussion around motion capture, the role of motion capture, the role of the artist, the validity of the actor's performance. And I'm not really going to buy into that debate because I think you can probably guess where I, I sit on this. I think that the motion capture artist's performance is incredibly important, as do, I think, the, the artists that contribute to that performance. But I do think that we should take a moment to discuss motion capture because motion capture is a really important piece of technology and increasingly is becoming the attention of these sorts of debates. And so I started by asking the guys about motion capture technology and basically pushing the cutting edge of what's uh, possible. Now, in the case of apes, one of the areas that was really interesting is that the team decided to take the motion capture volume, this space, in other words, that the performance is happening in, outside they actually took it to a bridge, to an exterior kind of uh, set to allow them to do motion capture in an environment that previously we'd not considered. Normally motion capture on something like Avatar had been primarily done inside in a very controlled environment where you controlled the lighting, you controlled the weather, you basically controlled everything about the way that the cameras could capture, which is in stark contrast to what happened on Rise of Planet of the Apes where they took the motion capture out into direct sunlight, with shiny surfaces uh, and allowed multiple actors to be captured simultaneously. I mean, it was clear to us reading the script that we really needed to do performance capture. We couldn't do it all keyframe animation, that we needed actors in the scene working with other actors and that um, they needed to be in the set at the same, you know, needed to be happening simultaneously with principal photography so that we were getting the performance of James Franco and the performance of Andy Serkis simultaneously. And that interaction was, you know, critical in 
getting the believability of and and getting the emotions of the moment to come through on the screen. So we, you know, we just uh, kind of buckled down and did our our homework and got our system up to scratch to to where we could take it into a, a cramped set where there was lots of objects, including our cameras, and we could work around that. And we could also take it into uh, outside into a, a broad open set where there's direct sunlight, and uh, we're working with you know much larger volumes than we've been working with in the past. And in both cases, we could kind of take the same system and scale it up and scale it down, and it would still give us good data. It was a lot more difficult for um, for our motion capture team to you know work under those constraints, but it was pretty exciting as well. Like we were um, we were able to build new tools that allowed us to calibrate and set up new you know performance capture volumes within about 20 minutes. You know as fast as they could turn the camera around, the motion picture camera, to make a new setup, we could pull cameras down and shift our kind of portable towers in, recalibrate, and have a new performance capture volume all set up and ready to go. And we're always kind of trying to figure out ways to make things, you know, faster and more flexible. Um, you know, we've already got lots of ideas for how we could improve on, you know, this same setup so that we could have less cabling and be even less in the way of the rest of the production crew. So, um, so yeah, I guess I'd, I'd take each kind of new new film as its own challenge and and use this, some, you know, as another hammer in the toolbox, basically. It's no longer just about whether you're shooting... CinemaScope or uh, you know 185. There's there's a whole lot of um, there's a lot of different tools available to, to filmmakers, and it's, I think it's an exciting and creative time. And uh, and hopefully, you know, a lot of the tried and true tools don't don't evaporate as well. You can't deny. I think the the thing right now is is what's really going to be happening with film. You know, and you know how many films are going to be made actually on celluloid, and how, <laughs> you know what you know, or is the digital you know revolution going to take take over completely well so especially in really... light of uh, Kodak's uh, position exactly yeah so that, that seems to be regardless of quite where we might want it to go that seems to be dictating in some ways what might happen because you shot so, entirely um, on film on, on these right in 35 on yeah yeah uh, yeah it's always been film yeah. did you did you ever consider digital or, or was that ever a discussion that you were in the room that came up I imagine not because you'd want some consistency but it, it obviously uh, it, it's always these days it's always discussed to be honest it's it's always discussed on every film we we talk about um and it it you know the potter films had to stay on film yeah. it, it was part of the, the the sort of history of them um current films i'm discussing and working on the, the most of the reason now is is people are starting to worry about whether the, the stock will be around you yeah. know which is a crazy situation but um it's more of a logistical decision almost now rather than a, an aesthetic one. Well, there are opinions on what we think is good this year. There are your opinions what are good, but I think we should leave the last word to the supervisors themselves. Their opinions on what they think was the great work this year, their opinions on the other nominated films in their own category. I hand you now over to the five supervisors to discuss each of the five films. Really, all these, most everybody I've worked with or I know, it's all like friendly competitors. Uh, Rob Legato, I've known him for years. Joe Terry, he was a TD for me back in Star Trek days at ILM. And let's see, Eric Nash, I've only gotten to know him the past better the past couple of years, but he's he's interesting because he's got a similar background to myself. Started out in camera and things like that. If you look at all the movies, the the level of work this year really is better than usual. 
a lot. Sometimes you get a clunker in the bunch, but I think, gee whiz, the the camera concepts, the design, shot design. I think that's what I always look at. The artistry, the uh, what's that little extra pizzazz that people put in their movie? Um, I think most of these films have that. There's always something in each film that uh, I haven't quite seen that before, and and really high quality execution well they're so varied i I think you know one of my favorites is is, uh, transformers is that if you ever do any of this work you really understand and know the amount of work it it takes to get to uh, produce that kind of work and that caliber of work shot after shot after shot after shot it's all beautifully done it's all you know beautifully composited there's uh, you know the quality level of every shot is spectacular so you just just purely on that alone that's that's uh, a favorite uh, Planet of the Apes is a whole different thing. It's, you know, trying to uh, get uh, human emotion into what used to be or could have been uh, artificially created characters that are not necessarily as sensitive to performances as not. So there's something really quite wonderful about that. There's Real Steel, real steel? which is a, a similar in tone of trying to get personality into uh, machinery and, 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 you know, robotic sort of stuff to give it an extra little human flavor. And then Harry Potter. Well, Harry Potter is... is you know, kind of like what I used to think a special effects film or visual effects film was, which is fantasy-oriented things, people flying and creatures and things. It's kind of the big smorgasbord of visual effects as we sort of traditionally know it to be, as opposed to you know trying to do very subtle things or very whatever. I think I think all the nominated films had some really good work in them. I uh, you know you, you look at like Transformers for example, and there's just you know amazing detail in some of the simulations huge amounts of destruction of um, tons and tons of surfaces and polygons. You just look at the poly count and the, the particle count, and there's you know some really phenomenal work there. I really liked, uh, I thought Hugo was, was beautiful and some really kind of creative shot design choices, um, great matte paintings, great environments. So, you know, Real Steel, another interesting example of adapting performance capture tools to a new problem, and uh, I thought there was a lot of good work there. Well, Rob is always... Uh, among, if not the most entertaining presenters, he this year he came out and did a an incredible Marty Scorsese impersonation <laughs> that had had the crowd in stitches. Um, you know, and Joe is the consummate professional. He's probably been up there more than anybody I can think of over the past ten years. I don't think it'll be long before he. Uh, you know, challenges Dennis Muren for most visual effects Oscars. So he he's really good at it. Uh, you know, knows how to be very concise and and hit the points. And uh, you know, the work on Apes is, uh, in my mind, they've got to be the favorite going in along with Harry Potter, um, just because the the close up work and the performance of the lead ape in that movie is such remarkable work. But what caught, but your, yeah. what caught your attention in Harry Potter? You, you listed it as another favorite. Do you think that's a favorite because of body of work, or is there something? I that... think it's part of its body of work. I think particularly the last handful of, from the point where the movie started to get dark, yep. I think the work has just taken on an incredible consistency and breadth of of stuff that they have to do. I mean, it's just gorgeous work, beautifully designed, beautifully executed. But I think being that it's the, 
you know, what might put them over the edge. And I think it's going to be one, you know, either apes or Harry Potter. Um, I think it'll be, even though you're, you're only supposed to be voting for this movie, you can't ignore the, the seven that preceded it. And the fact that they've only been nominated twice prior, that might be worth something to the voters. Uh, thought, but the work is so consistently strong, and it's such a variety of work that they always have to do on those movies. You know, I think the work in Hugo is beautiful. I mean, that's 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 it. You know, it's um, it's seamlessly executed, and it, it's once again, it's it's the elegance and the beauty of the of the camera work and the CG environments are all part of the storytelling, and I think that's the the wonder of it. And it, and it you know, it's just superbly executed. And it draws you into the film, and it gives the film, you know, this magical quality. So I, I think, you know, from the pure elegance and execution of the work for Hugo, I think that's, you know, got to be acknowledged. And, um, and of course, you know, you can't help but mention the, you know, we were just talking about characterization, and of course, the work that was done on Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you know from a motion capture point of view and how that's been translated into the performances of, of the apes, Caesar, and I don't know the name of the orangutan, but I think he was fantastic as well. Orangutan was particularly um, good, I thought, yeah. He was very, very good. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's a couple of things happening here. One, it's the consistency of the performance that, you know, is believable for the character, and here you've got an, a leading character in the film. And that's that's a stunning accomplishment, I think. And not only that, but then you've got the sheer volume and quality, you know, consistent quality, but the volume of work. Um, so I think that that's a really strong contender and has to be recognised, uh, you know, from a not just a technical, but you know, once again, here's here's something that visual effects of you could not have had this story without the visual effects involvement. And the other films, you know, they're. Well, let's face it, you know, they're two very well executed films where, you know, Real Steel brings these, you know, motion capture techniques alive and, you know, generates great characterization within, you know, the robots as as does the Transformers film, you know, and the, and the special effects work in both these films is phenomenal. And of course, that's what we're judging as well, for special effects as well as visual effects. And I think... You know, having been at the Bake Off last week and seen and heard some of the things that these guys have been building uh, <laughs> practically as well as the digital stuff is phenomenal. So I think it's a really good selection of very polished work this year. And I think that's that's important because, you know, I don't think any of the films are weak in any way. And it, I find it very, very difficult to actually say who who actually is a favorite and i think in some ways people these days yeah they're, they're as happy with the nomination as anything else you know yeah and it, it, that's the recognition you know Well, that's it for our special FX Oscar podcast. I want to thank all of the supervisors and the teams for contributing this week. Also, I want to thank our producers and uh, researchers and teams behind the scene, Ian Fales, Matt Graham, and, of course, my partners, John Montgomery and Jeff Huser. I also want to thank you guys for being with us and our special sponsors this week, SideFX Software, who made this possible. 
please uh, post your questions on the forums and check out our other podcasts, including our VFX show podcast, a special Oscar discussion about uh, the visual effects from the uh, pundits, our team, and uh, the Predictinator, as well as, of course, the RC podcast and uh, FX Guide TV that has full coverage of both the Oscars and the VS Awards. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.